Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this last session on Revelation. I pray in Jesus' name that we will have a great time here tonight. Gathered around your word, the bread of life, I pray that you would feed us with it, Lord. I pray that we'll be excited about the culmination of your plan for the for the uh, chosen human race, Lord, all of which we are in, Lord, which we are all in. And I pray that it would be not just an intellectual thing with us, but that we will uh, actually, with all of our hearts and souls and minds, be excited about the fact that we are the new Jerusalem, Lord, and that you have given us a plan, Lord, to spread the gospel all over this world. I pray that every one of the people in here, Lord, every one of the brothers and sisters in here will fit right into what you want them to do to help, exp- to help carry out that plan. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is chapter 22. I called it Jesus is Coming Soon because the last half of the chapter, five times, John says, Jesus is coming soon. My favorite word in all of the New Testament, I think. We're also going to talk about the river of life and the tree of life, which are symbols of the new covenant. Remember last chapter, if you were here Sunday, Sunday, the class is talking in the back. Oh. <laughs> You know, usually in my college classes when a boy and girl sitting in the back. Oh. <laughs> I wonder what it... If they's got it's demon possessed. Well, Gerald, 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 Gerald you, you're the computer guy, man. What's going on? All right. Oh, you're doing it. Oh. Oh, man. All right. I'm done. Sorry about that. We're not in control of our own lives. <laughs> All right. So last chapter, we talked about the new heavens and the new earth, the capital of which is the new Jerusalem. And I tried to show that that was the new covenant, a symbol of the new covenant. We're still doing that. And I also tried to say that it, we need to quit thinking about this is merely exclusively referring to the final state, the eternal state. It's the new covenant which started when? Basically when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It extends all the way through the church age, through now, 21st century, all the way up to the end, all the way to eternity. So I'm not saying that the book of Revelation doesn't talk about the future. It doesn't talk exclusively about the future because... The future is now, actually, and on and on and on and on. So that's kind of our background. So let's start with verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. Then he, that's the seventh bold angel, showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the broad street of the city. What city is this? Let me ask Aiden, since I just learned your name. What city is he talking about here? The New Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, right? which is the symbol of the New Covenant. And in the New Covenant, guess what? There's a river running right down the middle of the city. Now, what does living water mean as opposed to dead water? Like spring water, moving water? It's moving, it's spring water, it's clear, and also fish can live in it. That's why it's living, because it supports life, okay? Now, again, going along with our theme to show that this is all talking about the New Covenant. Now, where in the New Covenant... or where in the New Testament do we see this, this metaphor of a river of living water? Well, before we go to the book of John, we can look at Revelation 21.6, and he, that's Jesus, said to me, it is done. 
What did Jesus say when he was on the cross being crucified? It is done. It's finished. So I take that the beginning of the new covenant when Jesus was crucified. And some people say it was when he rose again from the dead. Some people say Pentecost. I, you know, I'm not, I don't know. I think it's when he, he died on the cross. He said it is done. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of what? The new covenant. And he says, I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. So there's that living water again. Water that gives life. Notice it's a gift. You don't work for it. God has to give it to you if you're going to drink that water. All right, so we, this reminds us of in John chapter 4, verse 14. Whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within, within him for eternal life. There's water for life, living water. Now, in one of my previous sessions, I think I referred this to the Feast of Tabernacles, and that was a mistake, actually, because this, the Feast of Tabernacles reference to the uh, streams of living water is in John 7, verse 37, second half of the verse through 39, first part of the verse. Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. This was right in the middle of a ceremony when they did, they were pouring water, the priest were for that ceremony. And Jesus stood up and said, Anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. The one who believes in me will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Now, the living water stands for what? This is easy. Holy Spirit. All right, so that's not hard. Now, this is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 47, and I've selected some passages. I've got to give you a little preview here. This is a description of the ideal temple. And many people say, well, it's going to be resurrected in the future or rebuilt in the future. I don't believe that. I believe it's referring to the New Testament church. And let me tell you how it worked. If you read that chapter, you've got the temple of God in Jerusalem, and from the temple, water started flowing. And it went out the front door, at the east gate. Now, who lives in the temple of God? Who? Well... Okay, but more specifically, God does, right? It's this, you know, temple. You know what the Shekinah glory is, right? You know the Shekinah glory? You don't know the Shekinah glory. All right. Do you know when God appeared in the Old Testament, he appeared as a glory, as a as smoke, glory, light. That's the Shekinah glory. And that appeared every now and then in the Holy of Holies. All right. So the temple is where God lives in the form of His Holy Spirit, and then water starts coming out of that temple. Again, water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It goes out the front door, out the east gate. Now, if you look at Jerusalem, here's the temple going this way in the city of Jerusalem. Here's the east gate. The water comes out, and then there's a, a valley here. It's called the Arab Valley. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's the Dead Sea, and the water from the Sea of Galilee flows all the way down into the Dead Sea. Then the Arab keeps going down here to the Gulf of Aqaba and on out into the um, Red Sea. So that's the background. Now what we're going to see here is the water coming out of the temple, but it's going to do something that natural H2O cannot do. It's going to get deeper and deeper and deeper. All right. So this is why we know it's symbolic because water can't do this. The water from the temple came up to my ankles. That's Ezekiel's ankles. Then he, Ezekiel, excuse me, the, 
the angel with the measuring rod, measured off a third of a mile and led me through the water, led Ezekiel through the water. It came up to Ezekiel's knees. He, the angel, measured off another third of a mile and led me through the water. It came up to my waist. Again, he measured off a third of a mile and was a river that I, Ezekiel, could not cross. Could not cross it on foot, at least. For the water had risen, it was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be crossed on foot. So what we see is the water coming out the temple, coming up to here, then here, then here, and then over the head. Now, what does this water symbolize? Now, it's the Holy Spirit of Christ, all right? The water comes out. Now, I saw a very large number of trees along both sides of the riverbank. The water went this far and then took a right, went south down the Araba Valley. So we're going down the Araba now, and there's trees on both sides of the riverbank. I've got it highlighted there because... This sounds very much like the next verse where the river of living water that flowed through the New Jerusalem had trees on the side of the riverbank. This is where the imagery comes from, Ezekiel. Now, when it, the water, enters the sea, the sea of foul water. What sea is that down here, the sea of foul water? Dead sea. It's dead, right? So we got living water coming out of the temple of God going into a dead sea. Now, when that water enters the sea of foul water, the water of the sea becomes fresh. So the Dead Sea becomes fresh. And that's never happened in history. This is a symbol. Every kind of living creatures that swarms will live wherever the river flows. So as this water comes out of the temple, comes down here, it's bringing life everywhere it goes, even into the Dead Sea where it brings life also. So the symbolism should be getting clear here. Then there will be a huge number of fish because this water goes there. So wherever the water goes, the living water goes, there's fish. Remember Jesus said he was fishers of men? So what is the symbolism here? Parker. It's going out from, well, if you take the word of Acts, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. All over the ends of the earth, the Holy Spirit's going out, bringing life where there was death before, and it's getting deeper and deeper and deeper, which means there's more and more and more people getting saved, basically. Now contrast that with the idea of when Jesus comes back, he says, will I find faith on the land? Oh, think about that verse. Will I find faith on the earth, you always hear? Translate it this way, perfectly okay. Will I find faith on the land? He was talking about when he comes to judge Jerusalem, will he find faith because of all the trouble and the apostasy and the trials and the great tribulation and all that? He wasn't talking about the end of the world because if he was, that would be contradicting the parables of the piece of leaven in the grain that made the bread get bigger and bigger and bigger, cover the world, the grain of mustard seed getting in the ground and making the tree get bigger and bigger and bigger. See, the idea is the gospel is going to win. It's going to be enlarged until it covers the world. Since the water will become fresh, there will be life wherever the river goes. So I think that John in Revelation is using, through the Holy Spirit, the imagery in Ezekiel 47. All right, let's go to Revelation 22, verse 2, second half of the verse. The tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing are for healing the nations. Now, the first question you might ask is how can one tree be on both sides of the river? Did you ever wonder about that? 
When I was 18 years old, I wondered about that. It just always drove me crazy. What's the answer? Actually, that one commentator I read, that was one of his solutions. I think it's a better solution is that the trunk's on one side and the bows go over the other. There's another possible solution, too. It turns out that in the Greek, the the is not there. It just says tree of life, and it could be translated as trees of life. You know, the concept of tree of life, there's a tree of life on both sides. I really don't like that solution. I think it's just planted on one side, the boughs on the other side. Now, the tree bears 12 kinds of fruit. Luke, what do you think 12 kinds of fruit means? Or, or the apostles, maybe. Uh, it could, but it, this is just my view. I think that because it says producing its fruit every month, the nearest context sort of tells you that the 12 refers to the fact that these tr- this tree is producing fruit, and then the next month it's a different kind of fruit, and the next month it's a different kind of fruit. Yes, sir? Does the Hebrew calendar have 12 months? Uh, uh-huh. Okay. So uh, what is the, what's the idea here? It's continual. It's continual, and it's varied. It's so wonderful to be eating this fruit. It's just it's a picture of paradise. Actually, a lot of people say that this picture here of the New Jerusalem is taken right from the first paradise in the Garden of Eden. All right, so the leaves of the tree for healing the nations. So that means everybody. Remember the New Jerusalem had its gates that were open, and the gates were always open, and then the kings were bringing the glory of their nations into the New Jerusalem, getting them saved, basically, is what's going on. That's what this is talking about here. The nations are going to be healed because, now, of course, nations can't get healed, can they? You ever seen a nation get sick and get healed? What's it talking about when it says nations? It means what the people in the nations right okay now remember this phrase in Ezekiel 47 second half of the second part of verse 7 I saw a very large number of trees along both sides of the river bank so again you see the parallel with Ezekiel 47 all right let's look at Revelation 22 3 there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it that's in the new Jerusalem and his bond service will serve him. All right, curse. What curse has been on the world? Who wants to? Weatherby. What curse has been on the world? Death. Yes. And where did that death come from? Sin. Sin. Whose sin was it? Adam. Right, good, very good. So the whole nation, the whole world has been cursed from the sin that originated in Adam, original sin. Okay? And what did Christ do? He redeemed us from the curse. Are we any longer under the curse if we're a believer in Christ? Absolutely not. Huh? Say something? Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your sting? Exactly. So Jesus became a curse for us because it's written curses everyone who hung on a tree. He took the curse for us, all right? So when it says there will no longer be any curse, many people say, oh, that's referring to the new heavens and the new earth. That's referring to the final state. And it's not referring to us. It's referring to now, the new covenant. There's no curse now. 
because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. I see some quizzical looks. Does that make sense to what I'm saying? Okay, good. All right, let's go to verse 3. It's still in verse 3, I'm sorry. In the middle of verse 3 it says, And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Again, that's the New Jerusalem. Now, a throne is where the king rules. Is the throne of God in the church today, the New Covenant church today? Is the throne of God, is he ruling from his throne in the church? Does he rule the church today? Absolutely. Hebrews 4.16, Therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The throne of grace, that's where God's sitting, and we can go to him and say, help, which of course is almost every day. Hebrews 8, 1, second part of the verse, we have this kind of high priest, this is talking about Jesus now, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. <coughs> Excuse me. So Jesus is sitting on this throne too, and I think, you know, you got, do you have two thrones, God the Father and God the Son, or is it a big throne with two seats? It's imagery. It means rule. They both rule together. Hebrews 12, 2, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and protector of our faith, perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The sitting down, many people say, refers to he's finished working, so he doesn't need to stand up anymore. He's sat. His work on the cross is done, and he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God, where he rules with God. All right? So, that's New Covenant terminology for us today, right? And that's not controversial, is it? And his bondservants will serve him. Are we Jesus' bondservants now? Are we slaves of Christ? Paul the Apostle said that all the time. I don't have a verse for that, but I'm sure I could find one if I looked. All right, let's look at Revelation 22.4. They, that means the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem, will see his face. Talking about Jesus' face. And his name will be on their foreheads. Now somebody might say, well, we don't see Jesus' face now in the church age, in the New Covenant age, now between the first and second advent. Have you ever seen Jesus' face? Some people might have if they had a vision. Most of us have not. So does this mean that this means we will see physically his face in the, in the far, far future at the very end of time? How do we, how do we handle that one? Michelle? All right, is he talking physically? We'll see his physical face? Well, let's, you're hoping so? Well, I'm sure you will. When we, when we die and go to heaven, you'll see him physically because Jesus exists in his physical body now. But look here in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, when we receive the light of the knowledge of God's glory... Paul tells the Corinthians they receive that in the face of Jesus Christ. Could the Corinthians see Jesus physically? No. So what does it mean? How would you put that in plainer English? They saw God's glory. Say it again. They saw God's glory. It's pictured by the face. Right. How about, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. How about this, the knowledge of God's glory in the presence of Jesus Christ? You know, in the face of, in the presence of Jesus Christ. So when we see God doing something glorious in our life, it's in the presence of Jesus Christ, even though we don't see him physically. Hebrews 2.9, but we do see Jesus. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews was writing to first century Christians, 
And he says, but we do see Jesus. Did they see Jesus physically? I don't think so. Made Lord of the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So all of that stuff, they understood Jesus. They understood what he had done for them. Okay? So that still doesn't mess up my thesis that chapter 22 refers to the New Covenant Church. His name will be on their foreheads. The, now, if I have a cell phone, well, like this, this computer right here, it has a, a name on it. It says Mr. Steve Ackerson. Now, what does this name mean, being on this computer? Huh? It belongs to Steve. Now, since he belongs to it, does he take care of it? If I took this computer and started threatening to drop it on the floor, would he jump up and stop me? Probably. Because it's his, right? Now, what, what is... I shouldn't have done that. Let's see. So, how does this apply to Jesus' name being on our foreheads? If Jesus' name is right here on, on, let's see, on Parker's forehead, what does that mean? And so Jesus owns you, right? Now, if he owns you, is he going to take care of you? Is he going to let anything happen to you? No, never. So that's the idea of the of a name being on a Christian. We see this in Revelation 3.12. The victor, I, Jesus, will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. So that's the new heavenly Jerusalem. And my new name, that's Jesus' name. He's new because he's new covenant, so that's why they say his name is new. So what you have here, a Christian... If you put the references in Revelation together, you got a Christian, got the name of God the Father up there, you got God the Son up there, then you got the New Jerusalem up there, which means God owned God the Father and God the Son own you, and you are a bona fide citizen of the kingdom of God, the New Jerusalem, the New Covenant. Okay? Revelation now this is referring to uh, the hundred and forty four thousand, which is a special group of Christians who were surrounded in Jerusalem and escaped to Pella, which I've talked about before. It doesn't refer to every Christian, but the idea is the same. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of a God on their foreheads. You get a seal, that's probably the name. Boom. You belong to God. Nothing's going to happen to you. Revelation 14.1, Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. God the Son, God the Father on their foreheads. So that, that symbolism is very simple. It means that God owns us, and Jesus owns us. He's going to take care of us. We go to verse 5, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, who is the they here? They will not have need of the light. Who is the they? The Christians who are in the New Jerusalem. Who Are you in, are you in the New Jerusalem? Uh, are you in the new covenant? Because you believe in Jesus, right? Yeah. So that means if you're in this uh, new Jerusalem, you won't need any light. Now, is that talking about physical light? Again, remember, this is a, a vision that John is seeing in his head, and, we, and it's so easy to say, okay, it's physical in his head, so that we, when we get down here, we're going to be living in heaven, and we never have to turn on a light switch. That's not what he's getting at. What is he saying? We don't need light. From a lamp, we don't need light from the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. What does it mean to be illumined by 
God our Father. What's that mean? I just think of Yeah. I thought of two things. The one was yours, that light, if you're in the light, you can find your way. You won't get lost. Also, light stands for moral purity, right? So if you're in the light of Christ, you're not going to be involved in the darkness of sin. And it's a sort of a common metaphor. John 1, 4, and 5, life was in him, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. Who is the darkness? That's the darkness of this world, the darkness of unbelief. Jesus comes in and lights up people who believe in him. Now, if you go into a room, let's say this room was, it was the sun was down and this room was completely dark, and you lit a match in here, who's going to win, the darkness or the match? The match is going to win. Darkness is going to flee, right? Huh? But then you get a flashlight. And then you get a little lamp, and then pretty soon you got the, the spots on. You know, light, this, you can have more and more light, but even a little bit of light's going to beat the darkness. So the idea is, is darkness is not overcoming the light, and that's us. We're overcomers. John 8, 12, that Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. Again, very simple symbolism. Again, is this new covenant or in the future, 2,000 plus years in the future? Is it now? Now, no problem. Now, same verse, verse 5, Revelation 22. It says, after the Lord God will illumine them, they will reign forever and ever. Now, does that sound familiar? You might have heard Handel's Messiah. Are y'all into classical music? You, ah, I see somebody shaking. Is that Carissa over there shaking her head? All right, what is it when you get to, uh, in Handel's Messiah, and, and you get to the Hallelujah Chorus, and, it, and, the, and the choir starts singing, He shall reign forever and ever, and everybody stands up, right? Well, look at here. This is, they will reign forever and ever. Well, where did Handel get his, He shall reign forever and ever? Right here in Revelation eleven fifteen is where he got it from. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's Jesus reigning forever and ever. And look at here, Revelation 22, 5, they, the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem, which includes all of y'all, will reign forever and ever. So if the head reigns, the body reigns too. How can the head reign without the body? So that's another theme in the book of Revelation. I mentioned it several times. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. And then it says the church will rule with a rod of iron. Okay? So we're going to be ruling with Jesus forever and ever. The meek shall inherit the earth. All right, verses 6 and 7 of Revelation 22. And he, that's one of the seven bold angels, said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angels to show his service which must soon take place. I have to kiss this word here. <laughs> My favorite word in all of the book of Revelation. <laughs> what, is soon, what part of soon do we not understand? What does soon mean? Does it mean 2,000 plus years in the future? No, it does not. <laughs> so, And behold, oh look at here, verse 7. And behold, I, that Jesus... <laughs> Um, let's see. The angel said something must soon take place. And now Jesus says, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. All right, before I go on and on about soon, which I'm going to do in a minute, 
Let's look at this. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The book is not just a series of prophecies or predictions about what's going to happen. It's also an exhortation to obedience. What kind of obedience is, is requested in the book of Revelation? Can you think of something? Trust. Trust and don't take the mark of the... Yeah. Don't follow the world powers that are tearing you away from the Messiah. Yes, sir. Don't drink of the cup of the immorality of the whore of Babylon. Right. Obey. Okay. Now, this soon, getting back to soon, it shows up seven times in the book of Revelation, five times in the last part of chapter 22. In fact, the very first book of, book of Revelation says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Well, why, does, why do we read the book of Revelation as if, we are, as, as if all the events of the book of Revelation take place in the far, far future? When it says right here at the beginning, it must soon take place. And if John was writing the book in the mid-60s, or maybe even 66 or 67, in 68 you have the year of four emperors, the Roman Empire almost dies. In 69 the Cap Jupiter Capitoline Temple is burnt up. In 8070 the, temple, the uh, city of Jerusalem is burnt up and the temple is burnt up. All of which is in the book of Revelation. All of that took, soon took place. Revelation 2.16, I will come to you soon. Now, let me ask you, let's see, let me see if I got some. Oh, I got some more. Revelation 22.7, I am coming soon. Revelation 22.12, I am coming soon. Revelation 22.20, I am coming soon. He repeats it five times in the book, and yet we still insist on interpreting this book as if it's the future. The reason I like the word so much is because when you take a futurist who has his brain, I was a futurist once, I know how it is, you take your brain and you think, well, yes, yeah, it's, it's the future. It's the fu oh, my gosh, how do I deal with this? Oh, let me, let me tell you how they do deal with it, okay? If you're a futurist and you are confronted with these verses, what do you do? You Peter. You do what? Peter's letters. And Peter says... A day is a thousand days? All right, well, let's start with that. <laughs> let's say that... You want me to come, don't you have a language teaching class? All right, I'm your student. You're going to teach me Arabic. Okay. And I say, uh, the lesson's at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, I'll be there soon. I show up 1,000 years later, 2,000 <laughs> years later. And then you say, well, now you're late for your lesson. And I tell you, a day with the Lord is 1,000 years. Is that going to make any sense to you? No, because a day is a day with the Lord. From God's point of view, a thousand years is like that, but not from our point of view. Our point of view, a thousand years ain't soon. So that's how you take care of that. But, yes, sir? God didn't write the book of Revelation for himself. That's right. He wrote it for people, the people that he, that he was trying to explain what's going to happen. And we're humans, and if, we, if he told us that he's coming soon, and he meant 2,000 plus years later, that means he deliberately misled us. Or, or negligently misled us, which God can't do. All right, that's, that, that's what everybody says. But i got another one. There's another thing they say. They say, it doesn't mean soon, it means quickly. For example, right here, the New American Standard has, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Meaning, if it happens in the future, when it starts happening, it's going to happen quickly. Yeah. The ESV has soon. It's the same Greek word as takos, the Greek word. So, and I say, Okay, I'm going to come to your language class. I show up 2,000 years later. 
I park my car, I shut the door, and then I go zoom, and I just run into your your lesson as fast as I can. That's what that's what they're trying to tell me. Does that sound reasonable to you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't buy that. Verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, there's the idea of obedience. You're blessed if you obey. You don't take the mark of the beast and so forth. Now, went the wrong way, excuse me. Now, let's look at this coming. Verse 7, And behold, I am coming quickly. Now, of course, most the average Christian, when he hears the words, I am coming soon, everybody says, Second coming of the Lord. Now, I've already, last Sunday I said, First Thessalonians 4, Acts 1, Jesus is coming back just as the disciples saw him leave. He's coming back physically. That's true. But is that what he's talking about here? I'm coming soon. Let's see what he said in Matthew 24. Oh, that's wrong. That should say Matthew 24, 30b, second part of verse 30. All the peoples of the earth will mourn. And, of course, that could be land. All the peoples of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's a quote from Daniel 7.13. And um, we ask ourselves, well, what coming is Jesus talking about there in the Olivet Discourse? Well, if you drop down just four verses, Jesus says, I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. All the things that he's talked about from verse 1 down to verse 20, uh, 33. And that includes verse 30 when he says the Son of Man is coming on the clouds. So that means that the Son of Man coming on the clouds has got to happen before that generation passes away. When did the generation pass away? Jesus is writing, is talking to his disciples in AD 30. A generation is what, approximately 40 years? Conveniently, that lands right at AD 70. So I would submit to you this coming is referring to the coming to, to Israel in judgment to destroy it because of its sin. Any questions on that? All right, so let's do uh, verses 8 and 9 of Revelation 22. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brother and the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. Now, I talked about this when I was on chapter 19 because this is, the verse is almost exactly the same here as it is here. Now, this is a tangential thing. It does, it's not all that important, really. But there is a problem when you say that John fell down to worship at the feet of the angel as if he were worshiping a god. And the angel says, hey, I'm not God, get up. Don't worship me, I'm not God. Why would John, who's receiving a revelation from God the Father and Jesus Christ, physically, I mean, in his brain, he's seeing them. Why would he then turn around to an angel and bow down and worship him? I don't think John would do that. So instead of interpreting this as saying that John is taking away from the glory of God, I think it makes more sense to say that John is taking away from his own self-worth because the angel is saying, look, you are worshiping me, not as a god, but you're just giving me respect, like you would give respect to a king or to a, a non-god, but a high-level person. You're giving me respect, but you don't need to do that, because I'm your equal. I am a fellow servant of yours. I'm a fellow servant. I'm your equal. And you need to stand up, because you're a prophet. See, I'm a fellow servant of yours, and if you're a brother of the prophets, you are a brother of the prophets, John. You're a prophet yourself. So why are you groveling down here on the ground 
in front of me an angel. I'm just an angel. You're a prophet. Get up. I, I won't even ask whether you believe me or not. That's all right. We go to Revelation because it's not important. Revelation 22.10, And he, that's the angel, said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, Steve just mentioned this, mentioned in Revelation 1.3b, the time is near. And since that's right next to the verse that said the time is soon, well, near and soon sort of mean the same thing, don't they? The Greek word is ingus. And it's mentioned here also. Now, why did the angel say to John, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, of the book of Revelation. Don't seal it up for the time is near because the judgment on Jerusalem and Rome, for that matter, or the year of four emperors, was coming very soon. And so he's saying, keep the book open. You need to read this because this is about to happen. Contrast that with Daniel in Daniel 12, 4. But you, Daniel, keep, this, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. That does not mean the end of the world. That means the end of the Jewish age. Seal the book because Daniel was writing in the 6th century B.C., about 550, 600 years before. And so this is a long, 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 long time until Jerusalem gets burnt down. If you read Daniel 12, and that's, that's a good study too, Daniel is talking about the destruction. He's talking about Jesus coming and dying on the cross in Daniel 12. Well, that's not Daniel 12. That's, the, that's a different chapter. But in Daniel 12, he mentions the, the coming in judgment on Jerusalem also. And so what he's saying, the time of the end will come later, so seal the book up and wait. But not here. Time is near. We go to verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Now, this is sort of an obscure verse or strange verse. Let me give you a quote from David Chilton, who was quoting Gary North. He says that this is a prayer that the world may come out black and white so as to be ripe for judgment. Self-consciousness on both sides of the contest is always a prelude to judgment. And what he's saying is we are not going to be in a morally ambiguous situation where we don't know, is that right or is that wrong? It's going to be clear. The bad guys are going to be bad. The good guys are going to be good. And that's nice. However, I don't think that's the best way of explaining that. I think that what this refers to is the fact that people who are sunk in their sin, as they go through their life, time goes by, they stay sunk in their sin, and they don't repent, what happens to their conscience? It gets harder and harder and harder, right? And pretty soon they get to the point where there's no repentance for them. Like Israel, when Jeremiah was preaching to Israel, Israel just refused to repent. And I think that this is a characteristic of human nature. Uh, Greg Stoltz showed me a YouTube video about a guy who was on the, in the worst air aviation disaster in the history of airplanes. And he said he was standing there when the two jumbo jets hit at Tenerife off the coast of Spain. The jet fuel was coming through the airplane and was burning people alive. And he said, all of them would just stand up and cursing, cursing, some of them cursing God. They didn't repent. And I used to think, well, gosh, if I was an airplane a pilot or something and I knew the plane was going to crash, I'd think about my eternal fate. He says that when you're trying to survive, you don't think about that. 
All you think about is surviving. Because he was there. He was trying to survive. He said, you don't have time to do that. He says, you know, sometimes repentance takes years of studying the Word and listening to people. You know how people get saved. Sometimes it takes a while. You're not going to necessarily get saved at the end. And here, because the judgment on Jerusalem is coming very soon, the time is near, he says, it's, they're fixed in their sin. The judgment is coming. They they're not going to repent. It's over. The cup of his wrath is filled up. Now, so the one who is wrong and filthy is going to stay filthy. And, of course, that refer, I think that is referring to the evil apostate Israelites who killed Jesus. And then he says, let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. I think that what he's saying there is, look, you have a chance to apostatize under all this pressure that's coming on you. There's the filthiness and the wrongness and all that stuff, that nasty stuff is still going to be there, and you could be tempted to fall away from the faith. Don't do that. Keep yourself holy. And I think that's what he's talking about. I looked up some uh, in Futures commentators, a couple of them, and they had sort of the same idea. They were saying that things are, have gotten to such a pass that there's not going to be any repentance. They, they referred it to the future, but they had the same idea that the judgment is about to happen. It's too late, too late to, to repent. All right, let's look at 12 and 13 of Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, one thing I think that will confuse us when we look at this verse is this word recompense. I think that means bad things, punishment. You know, what's your reward for not doing your homework? You get a zero. Well, is that really a reward? But we use that. We say things like that, right? That's your reward. You did lousy, okay? So I think we're talking about bad things. The next thing I want to point out is this coming soon to repay each one for the work he has done. That is very much parallel to what Jesus told his apostles in Matthew 16, verses 27 and 28. Now, this was about one week before the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, NIV study Bible says seven days, so we'll say seven days. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. So John says, repay each one for what he was done. Jesus says that uh, Jesus will come and reward each according to what he's done. That language is so close and so parallel, I can't believe it's referring to two different events. So now, if I can show that Matthew 16 is referring to the judgment on Jerusalem, the reward, the recompense is the judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70, and we can tie these two verses together, then that means that Revelation 22 also refers to AD 70. So how do I do that? Okay, in verse 28, Matthew 16, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here. This is right below the Mount of Transfiguration. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, the Mount of Transfiguration, you recall, the mountain, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. You remember that? And then Jesus appears, and it's at nighttime, and Jesus appears with Elijah and Moses, and it's real bright. You remember that? That happened seven days later, okay? Now, Jesus says, some of you standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming. Three options as to what this coming is, all right? First option, 
the Mount of Transfiguration seven days later. Okay? Does that make sense? Some of you, now let's say that I said to you, some of you are going to live till next Wednesday night when you have another Bible study. Does that make any sense? What are the odds that any of you are going to die before in seven days? They're very slim, right? Depends on how you drive and whether you drive motorcycles. But, you know, typically, you know, you're not going to die. So why would Jesus say something like that? It makes no sense. All right, so it's not the Mount of Transfiguration. But let's take the other, the other possibility coming in his kingdom. We can posit that it refers to coming at the end of time, okay? Some of you will not taste death until the end of time, until you see the Son of Man coming at the end of time. So if I told you <laughs> that you are going to, some of you will not taste death until Jesus comes at the end of time, how many of you are going to live that long? We already know it's been 2,000 years since then, right? None of you are going to live that long. Not some of you, none of you, okay? So it can't be coming at the end of time. But now let's say it's eighty seventy. Now remember, this is AD, somewhere around eighty thirty. okay? Some of you will not taste death. Now, if we're talking about 40 years, if I, if I told you 40 years, let's have a homecoming, a little revival here at ARF, and um, I want all of you who are still living to come. Some of you might be alive. Some of you might not be, right? Because 40 years, a lot can happen in 40 years. All right, so that's what he's talking about. Some of you will not taste death until you see the man, Son of Man coming in judgment on Jerusalem in eighty seventy, And notice that the phraseology, coming to repay, to reward each according to what he has done. In Matthew and Revelation, I am coming soon to repay each one for what he has done. Pretty close, is it not? So I would submit to you that this coming soon refers to judgment on Jerusalem in eighty seventy. Did everybody understand this argument here? I was in Wenzhou, China. Preacher, he, he would take questions just like y'all do here. And he asked that question right here. And I said, 8070. He says, no, that's impossible. <laughs> and I thought, impossible? What? Or I wasn't going to argue with him in church, you know. But I said, well, what's impossible? The other two are impossible, in my humble opinion. We go to verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city if you have the right to be called the sons of God, that means you're a Christian. The tree of life, that means you're eating uh, tr- uh, the leaves that give you life. is symbolic of your eternal life. And remember in verse 2, that tree of life was on each side of the river. I won't read that again. It was also mentioned in, the tree of life was also mentioned in Revelation 2, 7, second part of the verse. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, are you a conquering Christian? Yes, you are. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Yeah, you're a con because the one who is born of God is First John five. The one who is a is born of God is a conqueror. Conquers, and this is what conquers our faith. Okay, so that's pretty easy. We go to verse fifteen. He just talked about verse fourteen. The good guys that have the right to eat of the tree of life. In verse fifteen, he's talking about the non-believers and outside. That means outside the New Jerusalem, outside the New Covenant, subject to the curse of of God that's on the world, outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, the interesting thing about this dogs here, when we think of dogs, what do we think of? Cute little dog, big brown eyes, little tails fluffing like that, you know? 
That's not what they thought of when they thought about dogs. They thought about those junkyard dogs, you know, the big black Doberman pinches that come running at you when you're jogging, and they, they don't bark, and they're black, and all you see is white eyes and their white teeth, and they're going, Arr! I had that happen once. It scared me to death. That's the kind of dogs they're talking about. Paul, Paul says in Philippians 3.2, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, people who say you've got to be circumcised to be saved. But even worse than that, probably, John is referring to uh, a dog, as mentioned in Deuteronomy 23.18 in the law. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. The harlot is an abomination, and the dog is an abomination. Uh, what they would do, these pagan temples would do, is they would, they would have temple prostitutes at the temple. And in order to get you in contact, in union with the demon god, they would say, all right, you have sex with the temple prostitute, and that'll get you close to God. It's an abomination. Well, the dog was a, that harlot is a female prostitute. The dog's a male prostitute, homosexual prostitute, temple prostitute. And so... It could be that the dogs that are being referred to here are really bad people. That's just a sideline. Uh, the point is, is all these people, this is a typical description of non-believers. We go to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, the first problem is, how can Jesus be the root of David and the descendant of David? The root means you come first, right? The descendant of David means you come last, afterwards, right? So how is that possible? Let me see one of these. Ben, let me see if you can answer that one. Because he's the source of all things, and Jesus came through the line of David. Yes, now how is he the source of all things? Yes, he's a creator. He, he, Jesus, with God, created all the universe. So he created David. So that's how he's the root in his divine nature. And in his human nature, he's descendant of David. Right? Isaiah says he's the shoot of David. So Jesse was David's family, and David's family went all the way through David. And then David's family got wiped out in 586 when the Babylonians came in. But then there was a little shoot that grew out from the stump. But that's the idea, how he's the root and the descendant of David. He's also the bright morning star. Now, what does that mean, the bright morning? What's your name? I'm sorry. I'm Michael. Michael? Yes, sir. All right, what do, you, what do you think the bright morning star is? Um, the light bringer, the one that kind of like we see, is it Venus? Venus. Is just above the yeah, and what is special when you see Venus? What is, what is unique about Venus when you see it? Well, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. In other words, it's getting ready to announce, it announces the coming of an even brighter light. But Venus itself in the sky is very bright itself, even brighter than the rest of the stars. So that's a good metaphor for Jesus because he's the light of the world. And in fact, he is referred to as the morning star in Revelation 2.28. I will give him the overcomer, the morning star. I forgot who the I was. I can't remember the context. <laughs> Somebody's going to give the overcome of the morning star. All right, we go to verse 17, Revelation 22. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Anyone who hears should say, come. 
And the one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. All right, first of all, we notice that the living water, which is salvation, the Holy Spirit living in you, is a gift. You do not earn it. Now, who's saying come into the new Jerusalem? Now, the come is coming to the new Jerusalem is what it's talking about. Who's saying that? Well, you got the Holy Spirit saying that, right? Who's the bride? The church. So the Holy Spirit is saying come into the new covenant kingdom, into the new Jerusalem. But the church is also saying come into the new Jerusalem. That means we witness and we tell people about Jesus and get them to come into the kingdom. So we work with the Holy Spirit in order to get people to come in. And the one who is thirsty should come. Any questions on that? Go to verse 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. This is uh, uh, that I, I think it's John speaking. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And there are plenty of plagues in there. Seal, trumpets, bowls. And it's going to be worse for you if you change the, change the book. If you add to the book, or if you take away the words of the book of this prophecy, you're going to get worse plagues than is described in the book. It's a very serious business, because back then people would change books. Heretics would take the books and write and add things and so forth. And then it says, if you add or subtract from, and by the way, this is the book of Revelation, not the whole canon, not the whole Bible. This refers to the book of Revelation, although I'm sure the, it, it could apply to the rest of the Bible too. And if you do that... John says, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Does that mean that you can lose your salvation, James? No. Really, but it says God could take away his part from the tree of life if you add to the book or subtract from the book. You can have knowledge of God without having knowledge of God. (laughs) Knowledge about God. about, About God without actually knowing him. So, yeah. Well, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And if we go back to the previous, well, let's see, the previous context, which is right here. This is who he's talking about. He's talking about these bad guys, the dog, sorcerers, immoral persons, and so forth. Those are the ones who, I'm sure, he's referring to and say, look, you might like to do something about this book because you don't like the fact that I called you a dog, an immoral person, or a sorcerer. But if you do that, you're not going to take have a share in the tree of life. In other words, you're not going to get saved. This verse does not teach that you can lose your salvation. In fact, we see in Revelation 3, 5, in the same way the victor, the overcoming Christian, will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life. I will never erase his name from the book of life. How can we lose our salvation? Jesus said it right here. You you get dressed in white clothes, that means you're already saved because you're dressed in the white clothes of good works because God gave them to you. It's a gift. And then, once you're in there, I will never erase his name for the book of life. Let's read 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The default position on that is we conquer the world. And if you conquer the world, you're a victor. And if you're a victor, God will never erase your name from the book of life. Just simple as that. I know I'm preaching to the choir here because I know your theology, but just want to shore you up a little bit. We go to verse 20 and 21, Revelation 20. Oh, there's my word again. He who testifies of these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the men. Now, this is this verse 20 is the next to the last verse in the book of Revelation. This is the first book uh, verse in the book of Revelation. And what does the first verse say? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. So the first verse and the next to the last verse, Jesus is coming soon. So that's why the preterist, orthodox preterist case, in my opinion, of the four possible positions you can take on the book of Revelation, this one wins hand down. If somebody asked me, would you bet your life on this? And I said, okay, well, I'll tell you what. Let's say that somebody told me that I had to choose four possible interpretations of the book of Revelation. Preterist, historicist, futurist, and idealist. And I've got one choice, and if I miss, I'm dead. What would I choose? I'd choose preterist any day of the week. I wouldn't even go to sleep worrying about it. I wouldn't worry about it. Yes, sir. Yeah, yes, ma'am. Excuse me. Sure, I could. All right, three of them have to do with the time frame of the book of Revelation, all right? And the fourth one has no time frame at all, okay? The first three are this, preterist. Now, you know what the preterist is, right? Yeah. All right, historicist takes all of these figures and symbols in the book and refers them to a particular time in history, namely the Protestant Reformation. I mean, you could take it and refer it to another period of time, but most historicists take it and refer it to the Protestant Reformation. That's historicist. Futurists take most of the events in the book of Revelation and put them somewhere off in the misty future. And that's why futurists say, well, the Antichrist is Henry Kissinger. Oh, no, the Antichrist is Muammar Gaddafi because they predict the future and since I can't disprove them because nobody knows what the future is. So they just speculate and speculate and speculate and they print millions of books and sell them and make millions of dollars and then when their predictions don't come true, what do they do? They just write more books and make more millions of dollars. And nobody can prove them wrong because it's all speculating about the future. So that's the third view. And there's the fourth view, idealist. And that says there's no time and frame at all. All these symbols are merely symbols of spiritual reality that's true all the time. And that to me, I call that the punt. You know, I, I can't figure it out, so fourth down, I can't figure it out, I'm punt, yeah. <laughs> all right, let's, all right, an hour's up here. Let, let, me, let, me, let me do some application. Jesus gives us life, the water of life, the trees of life. Jesus' kingdom is ever-expanding. That water's getting deeper and deeper. We're free from the law whose curses condemn us. We're not under any curse when we're in the New Jerusalem. We live in the presence of Christ, in the face of Christ. We belong to Jesus eternally because God cannot take us out of the book of life. He will not. And we will reign with Christ eternally, and that begins for us now. We're reigning now. The book of Revelation is a book of victory, conquering, dominion. It's not a book of fear. And, oh, God help me, the Antichrist is coming. The the ten-nation empire, the ten-nation confederation in Europe is going to come and take away all our rights. and all. No, it's about victory. All right, I am finished with the book of Revelation. Anybody got any comments? Oh, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray, Lord, that you will, that you will help sh- shape our minds to conform to the Scripture despite all the traditional pulls that go the other way. 
any false mindsets that we might have had. I pray that we will see your glory, your power, your victory, even as we look at ourselves and we say we're such failures, we're such sinners, and, we, and we've screwed up so much, and then the church is screwed up, and then the world is coming in on us. Lord, I pray that we will see the power of Jesus Christ manifested in us the temple of the living God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. And I pray, Lord, that we will, that we will usher many, many people into the new Jerusalem so they can drink of the water of life and so that the gospel will spread until the gospel covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. I pray that you would all that you would help each one of us find our ministry in that, that we will not grow weary of doing good, that we will persevere, that we will learn the, that we will bear the fruit of the spirits, one of which is endurance and long suffering, and that we will take a long view of what we have to do and not worry about getting jerked out of the world when things are tough, but that we will continue to preach the gospel. Thank you for these, for these brothers and sisters. They've been wonderful, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.